These are the keys that I lost yesterday, Karen, and they found them. Woohoo! I was getting ready to put an ad in the penny saver. My. In the door lock of the copy room. Thank you, Nicole. Whew. That's made me happy today. Okay, I feel better. Ah. I wonder if any of you have specifically noticed this year that it felt something like the holidays and the pressures of the holidays were pressing in on you a little bit more than usual. Uh, storms were arising. You would no sooner deal with one thing than something else would happen. It just seemed like everything was pressured inside. I can remember one day I was looking at Facebook and uh, I know for some of you, you, you probably, uh, if you, you are avid Facebookers, you'll notice that I rarely ever post anything. All I do is stalk everybody else and just see what they have. Uh, it's my way of keeping track of all of you guys. And all, you know, come on. Um, but I was, I was looking at Facebook, and somebody, a friend, posted a picture that was like uh, one of those nostalgic pictures of somebody sitting in an easy chair with their foot up on an ottoman with a cup of hot cocoa in one hand, their Bible in the other hand, and a fire in front of them. My very first thought was, I hate you. <laughs> because, come on, life is, that's not life. Life was pressured, it was hard. So what I felt to do for this month of January, as we're looking, as we're entering into the first month of the new year, is to talk uh, along the lines of the subject that uh, is called shift. Shift. I want to talk about shifting our priorities, shifting our expectations, shifting our hopes and dreams, even shifting our focus completely. Because I feel like um, I feel like what God wants to do is like take us to the eye doctor and help us to shift where we're looking and what we're seeing. So I'm not talking about just shifting a car. I'm talking about shifting how we see things and how we walk through things in our lives. Um, I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but getting your time and your priorities in order is a real challenge. Uh, I, I know several of the uh, ladies in the church are going through what they call a, uh, uh, I think it's a month of declutter, it's called, or maybe it's two weeks of declutter. It's where you do a different thing each day. How, how, you guys know what I'm talking about? You know, declutter your bathroom, declutter your kitchen, declutter your closet, all that kind of stuff. Well, Trying to get your time and your priorities in line is kind of like decluttering because you no sooner and feel like you get one thing done. You finally get this one thing. I've cleaned the living room floor. I can see the floor. We've got a carpet again. You no sooner and get it done than people put other expectations upon you and they declutter it. You know, if you have kids, you know what I mean. Cleaning up is like a stupid idea. What's the point? You're no sooner going to get the thing clean than they mess it all up again. Well, that's kind of like our time, our schedule, our priorities. And I think back, I'm old enough that I think about the good old days. Any of you guys think about the good old days? Didn't the good old days, you, don't you remember them as being easier, less pressured, more relaxed, lighter? I don't know if they ever were. But that's kind of how I think about it. What happened to the good old days? Why can't we have the good old days now? So all of that stuff that happens in life can so easily and so quickly begin to crowd out other things in our lives that are of more importance 
especially crowding out and making no time for God. Uh, Karen and I, some of you guys will know this, Karen and I uh, like to go out to eat once in a while. All right, every day. Um, <laughs> we don't, we would like to, but we don't. Uh, but we do like, when we can, to go to Wyoming Inn. I don't know if any of you guys have ever been at Wyoming Inn. It's, it's only open on Friday nights. That's the only time they serve, Friday lunch and Friday dinner. But we like to go to uh, Wyoming Inn, not because their food is that great, although I do think their food is pretty good. We go because they have the best carrot cake in the whole area. That's why we go. And so, although I haven't done it recently, I've almost been tempted to call them ahead of time to say, do you have carrot cake? Because if you don't, I'm not coming. But usually what we do is we go, and like this last Friday we went and we were disappointed. But when we get there and they do have carrot cake, we usually buy one piece, because they're pretty big pieces. We buy one piece of carrot cake and we put it right between Karen and I. And uh, we're going to share it, not because I can't eat the whole thing, I can. I want to. But I don't want to be a glutton, and I love my wife, and I want to share. So we put it right between us. And what I don't do is this. I don't say, Karen, I'm going to take this carrot cake, and I'm going to eat all that I want. And when I am done, and when I am full, when I'm satisfied, I will push it back, and you can have whatever scraps are left. I don't do that because I love my wife. And I want us to share that carrot cake together because I think it's something we're committed to, sharing life together. I would suggest to you, however, that for many of us, what I just said is exactly what we do with God. We maybe don't say it in so many words, but by our actions, by our behaviors, by our thought life, we actually are saying to God, God, uh, uh, I, I have things I want to do. Things I want to buy. Stuff I need to do with my time. And when I'm all done, if there's any time left and if there's any money left, I will share it with you. We do that by how we look at our lives. Look at how you live your life. It's kind of like this. We as Americans have been raised as a consumer faith. We, we, we think that ultimately the Christian faith is all about the fact that Jesus died for me. He saved me. He forgave my sins. He cleansed me. And everything from there on is about God blessing me. God make me happy. God satisfy me. My wants, my desires. And what this whole month is going to be about is shifting our priorities. Because when we talk about priorities with God, the issue is not to make God a greater part of your life. To give God more time. That's not what this is about. And if that's all you get out of it, you've missed the message. The issue of making a shift of our priorities is to make God everything in your life. Make God number one in your life. God is the priority. It's not that you put God first, then your family second, then you third. It's that you put God first, God second, God third, God fourth, God fifth. You obey God. You make Him everything. He is the priority over your life, over your finances, over your time, over your family, over your work. God is the priority. And the truth is, all of us have the same amount of time. We really do. We all have 60-minute hours, 24-hour days, 7-day weeks, and 52.1429 weeks per year. We all have the same. You didn't know that, did you? You say 52 weeks in a year. That's not true. It's 52.1429. I looked it up just to make sure. <laughs> we all have the same amount of time and the same 
way of giving our money to the Lord. Everyone has enough time and everyone has enough money. But that's not the real question. If we're honest, the real question that we ask ourselves is, can I live the life I want, buying what I want, doing what I want, and still have God be number one in my life? And I would suggest to you that that's a very unlikely formula. In fact, I would suggest to you that that's not going to work. You don't start out with what you want to do and ask God to bless it. You ask God, what do you want me to do? And God, would you walk with me through it? And it might be a positive thing that you feel blessed, and it might not be. It might be a challenge. It might be a trial. But when God's with you, that's all that matters. Jesus said this, if anyone desires to come after me, let him, do you know the rest? Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Deny himself. Think about it. God first? And I'm not? Is that even possible in this life to make God your priority? I would suggest to you that that's actually, that verse is Christianity 101. That's like the foundation of what it means to say you're a Christian. This isn't like for the way spiritual ones. This is what it means to even be a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus. Um, what I want to do over this month is I want to look at a book of the Bible that maybe some of you have never even read. Maybe some of you have never even heard about it. It's uh, the third book from the last book of the Old Testament. So if you go backwards, you go from Malachi to Zechariah to Haggai. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Haggai. We're going to look at it today. Um, page 635, if you're looking at your pew Bibles. Um, it's page 1358 in my Bible, if that helps you, if you happen to have the same Bible. Haggai, chapter 1. Haggai is like this amazing little book. It's only a couple chapters. But it is so full of the life of God. Every verse matters. Every verse will blow your mind. So, are you at Haggai chapter 1? If you don't have a Bible, we're going to actually put it up on the screen for you. Haggai chapter 1. Listen to this verse. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, that's, that's just amazing, isn't it? I mean, you guys could go home and just chew on that for a week. That would be enough. That's, that's astonishing. Um, to help you understand what that verse is about and where we're going in Haggai, let me give you a little bit of um, biblical history, if I could. And some of you will know this, some of you won't, but either way, it's just a brief synopsis. And I want us to go back to creation. In fact, I want us to go back to before creation. Because for some of you, you're going to be shocked saying, wait a minute, there was nothing before creation. Is there? Yes, there was. There was a time, if I can even use that word, which is an anthropomorphism. That's a word that you ought to know. It's where you apply human thinking, human terminology to the infinite God where it doesn't fit. But before there was anything else, 
there was God. Just God. Before there were angels, there was God. Before there was one angel who was a created being, just like you're a created being, before there was one angel to say, holy is the Lord, there was God. Before there was um, the earth and the sky and the sea, before there were animals, small and big, before there was the macro universe and the micro universe, there was God. Just God. He was and is Yahweh. He is the Lord. He is Jehovah. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning was God. John chapter 1 says it this way, In the beginning was the Word. And we know that Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, is the Word. In the beginning was just God. Yahweh, Jehovah. He's not the eternal I was. He is the eternal I am. All there was, was God. God is infinitely, I want you to hear this, God is infinitely complete in Himself. Nothing can threaten or disturb Him. Nothing can be taken away from Him, making Him less than complete. Nothing can be added to Him who is already complete. One of my favorite authors puts it this way. Our entire lives in every respect are deeply influenced by our view of our origin, our source, where we came from, who God is. We tend to think God thinks and feels the way we do. Threatened and afraid like we do. That He can somehow experience fear of loss, which is at the core of all negative emotions. But this is not God. God is infinitely complete and without weakness of vulnerability in any aspect, and therefore He cannot possibly be threatened or fear loss. God didn't awaken one morning, if I can even again use that anthropomorphism, there's just no other way for us to use, but the words we're familiar with. God didn't awaken one morning and say, I feel lacking something. I think I will create mankind. He didn't do it because He was lonely. God didn't save you because He needed you. You need Him who is complete in everything. There is nothing that can happen that threatens God. What you're going through in life doesn't threaten God. God's not saying, oh my God, I didn't realize that was coming. Oh myself, thank you. Oh me, oh my. Nothing that has happened to you has caught God by surprise. He's already fully God and always will be. And nothing can be added or taken away from Him. He says, I am that I am. I am He who was and is and is alive forevermore. Now, you might say, what does any of this matter? It matters because most times we walk around thinking all of the universe centers around us. And it doesn't. All of the universe is centered with its entirety of its focus upon one being, and His name is Jehovah God. It's about God. It's not about you. It's about God. We think the world centers around me, my needs and my wants. But really, it centers around God. It was then and it always shall be about God. 
So I want that to kind of seep into your soul. It's not about me. It's about God. It's about God giving me the strength for what I'm going through right now. God giving me the courage to face this trial that I'm going through right now. God giving me the grace to be kind and loving right now. But it's always about God and what He wants to do through a human vessel that is weak, that is frail, that has wants and desires. But it's always about Him. God, in His infinite completeness, for whatever reason, did think. And He thought and spoke the worlds into being. He started with uh, a man by the name of Adam. That's not technically his name, it's just that was the best they could do. Adam. And then from Adam they created Eve. And then ultimately Adam and Eve populated the whole earth to the tune of about 7.8 billion people. All of that came out of God speaking something into being and forming. But God, who is the creator of all things, also gave some commands. Some ways that He said would cause life to work better for us as His people. And it's clearly His right because He created all things. He created us. He has the right to tell us what's going to work and what's not going to work based upon His creative design. But you will soon discover, if you read the Old Testament, uh, you would have probably been about through Genesis now. If you read the Old Testament, you would soon discover that mankind doesn't like to be told what to do. We don't like commands. We like suggestions. Could you just maybe give us a give us your suggestion, God, of what you think maybe we could or should do? We don't want somebody to tell us this is what's going to work, and if you don't do this, it won't work. It won't work well for you. We don't like it. So that they began to resist and to rebel against God and His commandments. <coughs> they did that which God hated until we finally come to Genesis chapter 7, I think it is, where God sends a flood upon the earth and destroys everything except for one family. Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. So he sends it forth and he sends out Noah as his salvation. Move forward just a short period of time and the people are rebelling again. And God says, well then what I'm going to do is I'm going to make a nation that I'm going to call my people. And he starts with a man by the name of Abraham. And he creates out of Abraham a son who's called Isaac and then a grandson who's called Jacob who becomes Israel. And Israel has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel who ultimately get taken into Egypt where they're put in slavery for 400 years. But then God sends along a guy by the name of Moses who delivers them out of their slavery. But the rebellion of the people against God continues. And it worsens as time goes on. Until finally they say to God, we don't want you to rule over us anymore. We want to have a king like all of the other rebellious nations upon this planet. We want to choose our own king. And you will remember the story. Their first king, Saul, didn't turn out too well for them. But the next two kings did much better. David, David was a man after God's heart. David did a great job. Other than that little thing, you know, that happened that one day, that whole rape and murder thing. Other than that, David was a good guy. And Solomon, his son, Solomon caused the kingdom to be expanded like no other and he carried the wisdom that no other human being at that time had ever had. He did a great job as well, other than 
his 700 wives and 300 concubines. He did a good job. But then when David and Solomon died, the people began to rebel, not only against God, but against each other. And pretty soon, the nation of Israel was split into to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And they actually began to have civil war together. Fighting not only other enemies, but fighting each other. Ultimately in time, the rebellion of the people became so bad that God allowed a nation called Assyria to come and to take the northern portion of the kingdom, Israel itself, to take them captive in 722 B.C. about. And they took them captive and spread them across all the nations of the earth. About a hundred years later, the rebellion in Judah had reached its limit. And God sent a nation by the name of Babylon against them where they took them captives, where they were held captive according to God's edict for 70 years. So after 70 years had gone by, this nation of Babylon had been taken over by the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, and a Persian king by the name of Cyrus, reading one night about this nation of Israel, made the decision that he would actually send back some of these Jews, by that point they were known as Jews, send back some of these Jews to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the temple of God. You see, when Solomon was the king, Solomon had built a temple that was the house of God that was more beautiful than anything upon the earth. And God had said that as long as you have that temple, I'm going to make that my house. My name will dwell there, and my presence will dwell there. Well, Cyrus makes the decision to send the people back and there to be able to build the city and to build the temple. But when they got back there, after just a short time, they became discouraged, they quit work, and years had gone by until another king arose by the name of Darius. And that kind of brings us up to date on where we're at with Haggai. Darius, the king, had not only sent people back, more people, skilled people, he actually funded the rebuilding of the temple. He funded it all. So, that brings us up to Haggai chapter 1. So if you're there, get back to Haggai chapter 1. By the way, that doesn't get you out of your Old Testament reading. That's just a synopsis, the briefest of views. You still have to read all the Old Testament this year, okay? Haggai chapter 1. Here are these people, along with their governor, Zerubbabel, and the high priest, Jehoiadak, back in their promised land, but without a temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now think about this now. Here is God who takes these people who had rebelled against Him and He had allowed them to be taken into captivity for 70 years. But God moves upon a heathen king's heart to send them back and to fund it. He sends them back and He has one command. Rebuild this temple. A place where I can dwell. And you will once again... Remember, Moses said, God, if you're not with us, there's nothing different between us and any other people on the earth. The only thing that makes us different is God's presence. And here, God says, first thing you need to do is to build my house so that my presence can dwell with you once again. But they made it clear. This wasn't about God anymore. This was about their happiness. Their wants. Their desires. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, in this temple to lie in ruins? Do you hear the irony, the sarcasm almost? 
Here God is basically challenging them because they were saying there's not time in their day to serve God. There wasn't money in their bank account to help fund the building of God's house. But isn't it interesting that they had money and time to build their own houses? Isn't it interesting that they had time for what they wanted, but not time for what God wanted? It's almost like God is painting this picture of people living in luxury. He uses the term of paneled houses. It's kind of like people who have walnut, black walnut trim, beautiful tile floors, vaulted ceilings, and a, a what is it called? A raindrop shower. These are people who are doing the best they can for their houses while God's house lies in ruins. And God is basically saying to them, so you're telling me there's not time to build my house, but you somehow thought there was time to build yours. You didn't hear me calling you to come and to serve, to serve in the nursery here at Family Life Church. You didn't hear me calling you to help to clean the building on a weekly basis. You didn't hear me calling you to uh, come earlier than others in order to shovel the sidewalk so that people can come in and not slip. You didn't hear me calling you to come and to pray before the service. But somehow you heard me calling you to go home and to build your own house and to make sure it's a house of luxury, a house of personal delight. Isn't it interesting that you didn't hear me calling you to come to church on Sundays because you were too discouraged from the bills lost the night before? You're in mourning. So you don't have time for God. You have time for the bills. In fact, you can't come to church because, well, I need to... Pastor, could you end here pretty quickly because I need to go home and get my snacks ready because we're all going to get together to watch the other playoff games. Because football is so important. I mean, it is life and death, right? I mean, who wins and who loses is everything. And God's challenging the people. I've been serving God now uh, pastorally for almost 40 years. And I see this double standard all the time. I, I, I hear pastors, and these are some of the things that have been said to me. Pastor, I appreciate the need, and I love that we're known as a loving, serving church, but I just haven't heard God tell me to do that right now. In fact, right now, I feel like I'm in a season of just waiting on the Lord. I feel like God has told me I need to make my family my emphasis and just, just spend time with my family. I don't think I have time for church or prayer meeting or life groups because, well, I, I, I just feel like I need to have some downtime for myself. And I find that sitting in front of the TV just relaxes me more. I've heard people say those kinds of things over all these years. They, they say things like, I don't have time. And, I, and part of me, I, I don't say that because I don't want to be nasty, but part of me wants to say back to them, did you watch TV this week? And did God specifically tell you to watch TV? And what program to watch? And when to watch it? Did you eat this week? And did God tell you what to eat and when to eat and how much to eat? Isn't it interesting that when it's our wants and our desires, we don't have to hear too much. But when it's what God wants, He better speak loud and clear or else I'm not going to do it. And that's what God's challenging them in Haggai. God is confronting their double standard of over-spiritualizing things. That's what we do so often. We spiritualize our rebellion. 
We say, well, I don't have time to do that because I'm too busy. I got stuff to do, important stuff. And we don't have time for God. God says, isn't it interesting? You didn't hear my call to build my house, but you somehow heard the call to build your house? At core, it's putting serving God aside for your self-serving wants and desires. That's what this whole book is about. It's a challenge to us. Is God your priority or isn't he? And I want to ask you, honestly, and I've been thinking a lot about this, but I want to ask you, what kind of people are we? What kind of people are we? Are we the kind of people that are going to make our wants and desires the preeminent thing? Or are we going to live what we say we believe, which is God is first in everything? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your body, and your strength. Love the Lord your God. Do we do that? Do we make God first? Do we actually care more about God's mission and God's house than even our own stuff? He is the creator who spoke into nothingness and created something. He is our creator. Doesn't he get the right to tell us what should be our priority? What we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing? Does God have the right to determine your agenda for your week? I'm a list kind of person. I don't know if you are. I like to make lists and I like to check things. There's nothing more gratifying than putting a check mark or a line through your list. You feel like you've accomplished something. Do you allow God to determine your list or do you determine your list? What's going to be the most important thing if God is your priority? We can paint it, we can decorate it, we can spin it any way we want. But what it always comes down to is what and who is your priority? Who's in charge? Who is in charge? That's what God challenges them for in the Old Testament right up to Agai. Agai. Who is in charge? Who's in control of your life? Who gets the say? It only makes sense that we who are his created beings would not merely attest to our faith, but would actually live it accordingly. God goes on, and he takes it even a step farther. Verse 5, follow along if you would. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Five times in this book, by the way, God says that. Five times, in two chapters. Consider, consider, take account. Put it right out in front of you. Put it on a spreadsheet and look at it. Where does your money go? How much of your money is God's and how much is yours? Your time. How much is God's and how much is yours? Put it out there. Assess it. Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, Because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. 
For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains and on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and on all the labors of your hands. God is basically saying, you have gone your own way. You have made your wants, your desires, your life, your ideas, number one. You made sure you were comfortable and you were happy. You worked longer hours. You worked overtime in order to get the money, in order for you to get those things that you knew would finally make you happy. Those new toys that you have to have. That new car. That new TV. All of that stuff that you knew would make you happy. And you worked longer hours. But what you did is you said, I don't have time for you, God, because I have to do this. I have to work. I have to provide a living. Which is really not just a living. It's not just enough to get by. It's enough so that you can do all those things that you want to do with your life. In verses 9 and 11, God makes it clear. And that's, it's not hyperbole. It's just stark truth. God is the one who called these things to fall short. He says in verse 9, I blew it away. In verse 11, I called for a drought. Why? Because God's not willing to play second fiddle to anyone or to anything. God is either first or He's not your God at all. You can't even call yourself a Christian if you don't at least in your heart of hearts say, God, I want you to be first. I know you're first. I want you to be first in my life. Help me to walk that way. Help me to believe that way and to walk that way. We keep putting it off though. We say things like, well, once I have a husband or a wife, as the case might be, then I'll finally be happy and then I'll be able to settle down. Once I finally have enough money and have all the benefits at the job that I want, once I finally have gotten that raise, once I've finally gotten that promotion, then I will have time to serve God. But I, I, I just need to do this for a while, and then I will have time. Uh, once I can finally burn my mortgage, then I can finally have time for God. Once I can finally get that final raise that I wanted, that I'm getting close to retirement. In fact, once I get retired, then I will have time for God. We say those kinds of things in our mind. Howard Hughes years ago was asked, how much is enough? And again, at that time in life, he was considered the richest man on the earth. How much is enough? And he said, a little bit more than what I have. Because what you have is never enough if God is not number one. But whether you have little or whether you have much, if God is number one, you have enough. Because you have God. That's what it comes down to. And I want you to kind of think about it this way. And I didn't know how else to do it, but I, I want you to think about you going through your life. And, and in, in your life, this car kind of represents your life. You're going your own way. You feel like you've got things under control. You've learned how to do it. And this kind of, by the way, this Camaro kind of lines up with the whole idea of shifting and all of that. Because when I was a kid, the Camaro was like the hot muscle car that everybody wanted when they were in school. But you're going through life. This represents your life. You're just going through life. And one day, somebody talks to you about Jesus. And you realize that somehow... There were things in your life that weren't working well. So you asked Jesus into your life. But what many of us do, and maybe we don't think about it this way, but I'm doing it this way, helping you to think through some things. What many of us do without even thinking about it is we pop our trunk open and we tell Jesus to get into our trunk. In fact, here's Jesus. He comes along. He looks like a guy from that era, right? 
Jesus comes along and Jesus has become a part of our life and we say, Jesus, I want to stuff you into the trunk. I want you to get in there. And, and basically, what we're saying in effect is this. Jesus, I need you for when I have troubles. In fact, Jesus, you're kind of like AAA. When I really need you, I'll pop the trunk and I'll let you out and you can fix my flat tire. And then I want you to get back in the trunk and I'll only pull you out when I really need you. And you can say, well, that's not me. Some... Christians that I know, that's exactly how they live. They don't even give one thought to Jesus all day long or all week long until they come to church on Sunday. And then it's just a religious thing. It's just, well, I, I do the official church thing. But ultimately, here you are. You're going through your life. You need Jesus, but you don't have any room. Look at the cars are all sealed. The doors are sealed. I don't have room for you there. Now some of you, you're, you're more spiritual than that, and you say, well, that, that's not me. I, I don't need Jesus to be my butler. I want Jesus in the car with me. So you open your car door and you tell Jesus, Jesus, hop in. Oh, no, no, not there, Jesus. I want you in the back seat. And we spiritualize it. We spiritualize it. We say, well, I like to feel his breath. You know, breathe on me, breath of God. I want to feel his breath on my neck. And we basically tell Jesus, Jesus, you're, you're right there. You're right there. You're always close to me. If I need to, I can just turn. I can catch you. I can see you in my rearview mirror. It's okay. You and I, we got eye contact. You sit back there. And if I need any help, if I need directions, I'll call for you. And basically, Jesus has become our GPS. He's the one who gives us some directions when we need it. When we say, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm lost. Can you, you, can you whisper in my ear? But the truth is, none of us like a backseat driver. We don't want somebody telling us what to do unless we're lost. Then we might say to him, could you just help me a little bit? Some of us even are more spiritual. We take Jesus in our life and we say, Jesus, no, I don't want you in the trunk and I don't want you in the back seat. I want you right up front with me. Would you sit over here in the passenger seat and be my co-pilot? In fact, there's all kinds of little uh, decals you can buy to say Jesus is my co-pilot. So that Jesus is coming along and he's doing everything well. And we talk, we can even hold hands once in a while. It's so intimate, it's so lovely. It's just I just feel him so close. I, I, I don't even like the fact that there's that little shifting barrier between us. And I don't like the cockpit seats. I want us to be closer. So I buy one of the older cars that have a bench seat so that we can just sit and hold hands and be close. And we can talk when I feel like talking. In fact, we treat Jesus a little bit like he's uh, Alexa. We just say, Jesus, I have a question. How far is the moon away? Uh, Jesus, why did you let that person die? And we want Jesus to be our Siri, our answer man for everything. But the truth is, until you get out of the car yourself, until you get out and you say, Jesus, here's the keys, here's the car, I am yours. Until we, we basically we say, Jesus, I, I want you in my life. You're everything to me. You're all that matters then we're not really living as a Christian. And the utter insanity of this whole idea, of even this example, is that we think we're in charge of everything. We're even in charge of giving Him the keys. But we've forgotten that the truth is we were never in charge. We're never in control of anything. God is in control. God has control of everything in our lives. Oh. I guess God can take us where He wants. I know it's a stupid example. I know it. But until we get to the point where, like the old hymn says, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll do 
what you want me to do. I'll be what you want me to be, dear Lord. Until we get to that point, we're still behind the steering wheel. We're taking control. We're the ones who are saying, I'm first. Whether you want to accept it or not, whether you want to accept this truth or not, He is the Lord. He's not the Lord because you make Him the Lord. You know, back when I I first became a Christian, there was a very popular teaching that was out there that said something like this. Jesus is our Savior, but we have to make Him the Lord. And it sounded so spiritual. But it's not true. He's the Lord whether you make Him the Lord in your life or not. He is the Lord of your life. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So whether you accept it or not, Jesus Christ is the Lord. He's your Lord. Whether you accept it or not, He is the Lord. You think you're in control? You think you get to choose? Well, I want to suggest to you it's never happened in all of human history. Man makes his plans but God orders his steps. That's what Solomon tells us. I love this next section in Haggai, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the people all got together and discussed it. It doesn't say the people formed a committee, which is what a lot of churches do. Let's form a committee to decide whether we're going to obey God or not. Let's see if the board can all reach consensus. It doesn't say that. It just said they heard the voice of God through Haggai the prophet, and they obeyed. And they went up to the mountain, and they cut timbers, and they brought them down, and they began to build the house of the Lord. And God says, here's what you get. If you obey me, you get this. One thing, just one. I am with you. And my question to you this morning is, is God's presence enough for you? Because if you have the bank account, if you have the house, if you have the car, but you don't have God, you have nothing. The only ultimate security you have in life is when you have God. Because if you have God and you don't have those, you still have everything. Because you have God. The real blessing, what I tried to say to you over these last weeks when we talked about the blessing of the Lord, the blessing of the Lord is not a bunch of stuff. The blessing of the Lord is His presence. The profusion of His presence. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 28. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God with you. I'm going to ask if you would, just to kind of bow your heads for a moment and ask the worship team to come on back up.
And again, it's just an opportunity for you to kind of close yourself aside with the Lord. Don't worry about what else is going on. Just you close your eyes and press into the Lord. Ask the Lord to draw near to you, make you more aware of His presence right now. In Haggai, it was all about the temple, the house of the Lord. But today, I think Jesus is making it clear. It's about His house. It's about His mission on the earth. It's not just about this house. It's about His house. And this house is only His house as long as we follow His mission and His heart. To love God, to love people, and to love Warsaw. My question to you this morning is very simply, is God the Lord of your life? I'm asking you honestly, by how you live, by how you think, when you lay in your bed at night, what's the last thought upon your mind? When you get up in the morning, what's the first thought? If we were to look at your bank account and how you spend your money, if we were to look at your calendar, how your time is spent, is God the Lord of your life? Is He the priority of your life? Not your career, not your agenda, not your stuff. Is He, Jesus Christ, the Lord of your life? Not because you said some prayer years ago. You know, you, you said the sinner's prayer. The question is, have you been living for Jesus ever since? It's easy to say some words. Is God your priority? And Haggai is telling us nothing else makes sense on this earth. I want you to just take a moment and ask God, be honest with yourself. Is God the Lord of your life? More than what other people think about you or say about you. People can be very kind or people can be very mean. Is your identity in God? All that matters is what He says. Is your whole life about buying that house and getting a new car or a new truck or a boat or a four-wheeler or a new gun so that you work longer hours, more overtime, and then come weekend, that's the only time I have at home. I don't have time to go to church to spend in the presence of God. Is God the Lord of your life? What I wanted to do this morning as we're ending is just to give you an opportunity to do something physical as a demonstration. To say, yes, He is the Lord of my life. And yes, there are things that I need to ask His help for because there's some things that have gotten out of order that are not His priority for me, that are not His agenda. I've made my list, but it's not His list.
I wanted to give you an opportunity to actually do something physical with your body to be able to say yes to Jesus, yes to His Lordship, yes to His Lordship over your life, over your marriage, over your family, that you're going to do it His way, not your way. And what I'm going to ask of you, if you want, only if that's something that you feel is true for you. Don't do it because somebody else does. You do it because that's the longing of your heart. If the longing of your heart is to say, God, as I'm looking at 2020 in this first Sunday of the new year, I want to make sure that it's clear. My life is your life. I belong to you, Jesus. I'm all yours. I'm all in. Whatever you want, that's what I want. Your agenda, God, is my agenda. If that's true of you, I'm going to invite you just to come up for a moment as the worship team leads us in a song, just to come up and stand. And by standing, you're saying, stand on the truth that He is my Lord. I don't need others' approval. I need His. So if that's you, I invite you, just come up and just stay. That's me. I'm in. Jesus, today as we gather together as your people in your house, 
Lord, from the beginning, we have said that we want Your will above all things. We declare the truth that You are the Lord of glory. You are God Most High and there is none like You. You have first priority in our lives and our whole life belongs to You. When we said yes to You, Jesus, we got out of the car and we handed You the keys and said, do whatever You want. Lord, in many of these cases, You've taken us in ways we hadn't anticipated. But we still say, Your way is better. Ultimately, Your way will be the best. We might not see it right away, but Your way is still the best. And we're going to follow You no matter what. We say yes to You, Jesus, to Your will, to Your agenda for our lives, for this house, We want to see this house built for Your glory. You said You would take pleasure in it and You would be glorified in it. Lord, that's our desire for this place. Not that we become known, but that You become everything here. So Lord, help us throughout 2020 especially as we're entering into this new year. Help us to walk in a way that honors You in all things. That recognizes your lordship, your supremacy, and that what you say goes. We bless you, Lord, and we pray that your hand would rest upon us as we walk in obedience to you. It says the people heard the word and obeyed the word of the Lord and went up to the mountains, gathered lumber, and built your house. Lord, we want to be a people that obey your word who hear the word of the Lord and obey it. Bless each one as they walk in obedience to your way. I pray in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord. Amen. Amen. The Lord bless you. Let's have a phenomenal 2020 as we walk in obedience with Him. God bless you.